0: Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. I have to tell you something, people. I I told you last week I wasn't excited about the Super Bowl, but I watched it. We actually, at the last minute, got invited to a party right across the street, which was great. It was like walking right across the street, and I watched it, and to be honest, it was a really exciting game. But I have to tell you, you know, the Lady Gaga halftime show was awesome. As it, as you know about people, I'm am a classic rock fan, an '80s rock fan. You know, you know from my past guests the kind of music I listen to. But I'm going to tell you something. You know, Gaga killed it. Remember when Springsteen was on? You know, that's my man, Springsteen. He killed it. And she actually said that he and Michael Jackson were the two inspirations for her halftime show. So you know what? Props to her. Props to Gaga. Hopefully, more people will go out and buy her music, even though she's already very famous. But I think America went wow. They think of her more than just a person in a meat suit. Anyway. We have a great show today. Uh, my guest is uh, has his own TV show where he interviews people. And the way I found it was the network it's on has a show called Ice that my neighbor writes for. It. So I was flipping around one Sunday. I think it was Sunday or Saturday morning. And I see this show. And it's, uh, it's called Off Camera with Sam Jones. And I put it on. And I was just captivated. So I send him a, a tweet, and he's nice enough to get back to me. And then I do more research, and it turns out he's he's a winning winning photographer. Uh, you know, directed some great things. And uh, so I'm glad, I'm glad to have him on. My guest is Sam Jones. How are you doing, Sam? I'm
1: good. Thanks, Steve, for having me. Oh
0: yeah. Now, did, did did you watch the Super Bowl? Did you get to see the halftime show?
1: You know, it's it's funny. Um, I'm not a big football fan, but I'll tune in every now and then. And uh, we we were invited to dinner with some friends of ours and our kids were playing together and uh, and it looked like a blowout and so everyone just kind of uh, stopped paying attention to it. <laughs> we ate dinner and then at one point someone someone turned back towards the TV and said, this looks like a game. And it turned out to... That last uh, last few minutes were crazy. Yeah, but uh, in general, I'm not a huge football fan. I'm, I'm more of a more of an individual sports fan, skateboarding and surfing and motorcycle racing and stuff like that.
0: Now, you grew up in SoCal, so did you do a lot of that stuff as a kid? Were you a skateboarder or were you involved in that scene at all?
1: I was. um, I was really into skateboarding. I was lucky enough to sort of, um, my, my life sort of followed the evolution of the skateboard. And when I was seven or eight years old, the urethane wheel was introduced and we got off clay wheels and then... Dogtown came along and made the first wider board and I think by the time I was nine uh there were two quarter pipes in my neighborhood uh my friend's dad was a general contractor and he gave us a pile of wood and we made a rickety quarter pipe and and right around that time all the skate parks started popping up so I was able to go to Concrete Wave and Skatopia and Skate City and all these places that that just popped up and um And went through that and then uh, started getting a little more serious about it, and all the skate parks closed. The fad sort of ended, and it turned to backyard ramps. And so then I got very into building backyard half pipes and started doing that stuff and got serious enough for a while to be on a team and competed. And um, Yeah, so my life was skateboarding for a long time.
0: Who were some of the guys that were your contemporaries, like who you're skating for? Because it's me, I remember growing up back. It's funny because growing up, I grew up in New Jersey, but we actually had a skate park in Cherry Hill, which was weird for the, the East Coast back then. And I remember, you know, having the OJ wheels and stuff like that. But I stuck at skateboarding. I tried. I just it was bad. I think I could do like a 360. That was like my big trick. But who were some of your who were some of your contemporaries? Like who were some of the guys you were skating with? And and what was it like cuz it back then it must have just been like before you know as you said you started building stuff in the backyard but it must have been just a really cool unfiltered scene.
1: Well, I was very lucky in that I was sort of right in the middle of all of it and through friendships um, ended up you know ended up right in the middle of the scene one of my closest friends growing up to this day um, was Neil Blender, who was a big pro and one of the most influential pros in terms of um, the trick style and, and infusing art into skateboarding and taking the trend away from, you know, skulls and stuff and into more modern art type of graphics. And so Neil Blender was a huge influence on the skate world, and he just also happened to be a guy that I spent, you know six seven hours a day with skateboarding and playing music and riding motorcycles and uh and neil actually taught me how to be a photographer by you know he he was into photography and so when we would go skate i we would skate a bit and then i'd take some pictures and and uh and because he was a pro i've skated at lance mountains ramp with all of the pal peralta guys i skated at the parks when tony hawk was there and um uh, Kind of all the big guys back then, uh, Jason Jesse and Steve Caballero. and it was it was incredible to be around those people and be at those contests and traveling and um, so yeah I, I, I sort of sort of lucked into a you know to a friendship that ended up being kind of entree into the into the upper echelon of skate world.
0: Now you said you know you learned pretty much photography from him. Well, you know, and he started getting into it had before you had started hanging out with him was photography ever really in your mind frame. And did you ever think when you were taking pictures at the skateboard that you would go on to be such a renowned photographer and shoot some of the most amazing people you have? I mean, when you were just shooting, was it just did you feel when you saw something that you saw it differently at that age or how did the whole progress into changing that into a career?
1: Well, it's funny. I, I didn't know I was going to be a photographer, and and when I was, uh, when I, was I guess, my first year of college, I, I went to Gonzaga University uh, for the first bit of college, and then I transferred out of there because it was too cold, and uh, you couldn't skateboard. But um, I remember being about 19 and thinking, everyone around me knows what they want to do with their life, and I don't. And meanwhile, I'm devoting... Five hours a day to being in a band, and five hours a day to skateboarding, and I was drawing editorial cartoons for the college newspaper, um, and, and you know, without realizing it, doing all these things that would later become you know deep passions in my life. Thinking I've got to find a real job, and and uh, and not really, not really ever cluing into the idea that I could do something artistic, you know, because it seemed like the things i was doing for fun were the things that i wasn't supposed to be doing because that would mean not studying or not you know getting serious and it wasn't until i guess i was 20 21 something like that that uh that i found photography and kind of kind of simultaneously i took a photography class at college and uh, started skateboarding a lot with Neil, and those two things kind of dovetailed into me learning about it technically at the same time that I had a great subject to shoot. And, and so, at the beginning, it wasn't. It, it was. It was more like a thing I could do that was fun, that felt as as fun as the other things I was doing and playing music and skateboarding and drawing. And uh, it wasn't until I guess a little bit later that. That I thought this might be a career um, towards the end of my college years, and I started out as a photojournalist because uh, again, I didn't. It didn't occur to me that I should go out and be an artistic photographer or a magazine photographer. I just I just wanted to keep playing music and skateboarding and um, and earning some money. So that that's sort of how I started, and and then you know as as I got more serious about it. Um, I started giving myself an education in terms of you know following following you know little bits of information I read in a book and then going to a gallery and looking up a photographer and sort of teaching myself but I, but I had sort of a backdoor entry into it because I started out as a pure photojournalist and and uh, worked for The Associated Press and that kind of thing and and didn't discover that that uh, what I really loved was make pictures of people in, in more of a cinematic portrait setting. And I didn't discover that for, for quite a
0: while. Now, how do you go about getting a job with the Associated Press as a, as a photojournalist? I mean, you know, because we, we all see photographs. It's something we do. And, and you know, back then, it, they were more in print because people read the paper. There wasn't, you know, all the access online and stuff like that. How does one go about getting a job as a federal journalist, and, and where were some of the places and the pictures you took, and were you enjoying it? I mean, you know, eventually you found out you enjoyed the other things more, but when you were doing it, did you enjoy it?
1: I did. Uh, you know, I I happened to do it uh, a little bit accidentally. I was, um, my college that I've, I graduated from was Cal State Fullerton, and I was on the newspaper staff as both. A photographer and a writer at that time, and I got really into it because since it was a daily paper, you know, it was sort of a full time job while also going to school, and I ended up spending a lot of nights at the newspaper office, you know, in the dark room until two or three in the morning, and then crashing on the couch in the back room, and and got pretty serious about it. And because we were a big college with a lot of you know Division A basketball and stuff like that. Um, I, I would photograph in environments where there were professionals sitting next to me and, and I I photographed a basketball tournament when I was, I guess, a senior in college and my team at the time, the college team had Cedric Sabalos and they were a pretty good basketball team. They were playing UNLV and they were, they were like, I think they went on to win the Final Four that year. So uh, I ended up, Taking some pictures that the Associated Press was interested in. They found out uh, some college kid had taken some pictures that no one else got, and so they contacted me at home and asked me to drive up to the Associated Press Bureau in downtown Los Angeles, and I did. And long story short, I, I didn't know wh- where the pictures were. I had about 10 rolls of film, and so they had to develop all my film for me and look at it. <laughs> and in the course of looking for these pictures, they discovered I was a pretty good basketball photographer so they offered me sort of a freelance position right on the spot to shoot for them and and i took advantage of it i i immediately started making plans to move up to la and and uh make myself really available and so i kind of hustled and got myself in a position where i made you know I, i was three miles from the office and ready to work every day and they gave me opportunities so I, I kind of I kind of lucked my way into it, and then and then hustled into into a bigger position.
0: Now, how long did you say you stayed as a photojournalist?
1: Well, I, about three years uh, before I realized that it really wasn't my thing. I uh, I love taking pictures, and I I love shooting. You know, the variety of things that, that came up every day. I mean, I, I did space shuttle landings. I went to El Salvador and covered the war. I um I. Photographed all the sports, you know, from baseball, baseball, basketball, football, on a college and pro level, and and hard news. You know, I, I kind of did everything, and, and it was it was a great education into photography and into learning about how you have to be able to make a picture. There's no excuses; you can't go out and you know come back and say the light was wrong or the the guy didn't show up. You know, you had to come back with a picture, which was great experience. But what I discovered I liked most was when they would say, okay, Harrison Ford's going to be at the, you know, at the Beverly Hills hotel and you're going to get 15 minutes with him to make a picture for his new film. And and I enjoyed the, those portraits and, and, uh, what I didn't enjoy was, was being in places where I wasn't wanted and where the press felt like an intrusion. I had to cover a funeral once and, uh, I hated being there in this in this space where it was this family's private moment, and my job was to get a picture of of the kid's mom who had died, and and it was never really my thing. I was I was always more of a storyteller with pictures rather than a a newspaper you know information gatherer. So I uh, so I started realizing that, but didn't quite know what to do with it, and and then I got an offer to go be a unit photographer on on a film set. Uh, what happened was some pictures of mine ran in vanity fair of the los angeles riots and and the political fallout that happened in in you know the police uh, administration in los angeles and the associated press picked up you know s- sold those photos to vanity fair and they ran and tim robbins saw the pictures and decided he wanted a photographer that could do what I did to to photograph his film, Bob Roberts, which is a political satire right. film. So, uh, so I get this call um, to see if I want to move to Pittsburgh for three months and be the unit photographer on this film, and and I was like, great! Jumped on a plane and, and uh, started a new career, which which was you know hanging around film sets and taking pictures, uh, which which started out great. Uh, that first film was fantastic because I didn't know what i was doing and and Tim had so much respect for the work I was doing that he shepherded me along and introduced me to the d p and and I was treated with a lot of respect and given a lot of freedom to make pictures, which I soon found out was not the norm for a unit photographer on a film set they're usually the person who's not needed and not wanted around and in the way and having to you know having to make pictures hiding behind you know ladders and Lights and things like that, and um, but it was a, but it was a great experience, and it and it got me in with um, actors, and you know, I, I again hustled and started making portraits of all the actors on the films that I did, and you know, I would kind of pull them aside and sort of lie to them and say we 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 need this you know portrait of you for the film, which wasn't really necessary, and so I was able to sort of build a p- portfolio of of actors. And, uh, and, you know, at the time I was a big fan of Richard Avedon and Irving Penn and Andy Levowicz. And, and, uh, so I, I made all these portraits and walked away. I think I did three films in total. And I walked away from that job with a portfolio of, of, um, you know, sort of celebrity portraiture
0: no. When, when, when you get the portraits... Well, first of all, I want to ask you real quick uh, about the photojournalism. Were you ever in a situation that you were just scared, like it was dangerous?
1: Yeah, in El Salvador, I was in a situation. I was doing a feature on a, a guy who made artificial limbs for landmine victims, mostly children, in El Salvador during their 10-year civil war. And the U.S. was involved because of, you know... Nicaraguan uh, ties to the El Salvador War and, and so the U.S. was involved and there was a guy who was a Vietnam vet who had both legs blown off in Vietnam and now his job was making artificial limbs for people, uh, for war victims in El Salvador, which was a humanitarian effort set up by an organization in the U.S. So he would go down and, and um, go out to these rural villages and find these poor children that, that had, had amputations happen. And he would make molds of their uh, arms and legs and then come back to, to UCLA and make prosthetic limbs and then go back down and try to find uh, these kids again and fit them with their prosthetic limbs and in the, and also find new, new people to help. And so the Associated Press sent me down with him to, uh, to do a big feature on, on his story. Cause it, was a, it was a fascinating story. And, uh, I got down there and it, it got pretty bad. Uh, a couple of the nights there were bombing raids and, and we were stuck, we weren't staying at the safe American hotel. We were staying at a house set up by this organization and, and, uh, the neighborhood got bombed. And, and so here I was with this, with this double amputee who had taken his legs off for the night and all of a sudden the, the bombs come and and he goes diving out of his wheelchair and under a table and i realized like god i'm a 22 year old kid and i'm in el salvador my parents don't know where i am and i'm under a table <laughs> with this guy with no legs and i'm gonna die <laughs> and and you know it was it was kind of scary oh it- and then uh and the writer that was that went down there, the Associated Press writer, ended up getting shot and injured and couldn't write the story. So I ended up also writing the story, which is my one and only writing piece for the Associated Press. Uh, it was the strangest experience. And, uh, and it also crystallized, I think, that this wasn't going to be my life. I, I right. had no I had delusions of grandeur that I was going to be some war correspondent photographer you know, that was not what I wanted to be doing. Um but but the story was fascinating and the and this guy was fascinating as a subject and I, I love that part of it, but I quickly realized that was not gonna yeah. be my face.
0: <laughs> yeah, definitely. I, I
1: think I I think I said that to myself that if I get out of here.
0: Yeah, I'm never I'm back. never doing this again. <laughs> get me on a film yeah. set. <laughs> so so now you after the film set after the three movies, you said you have all these portfolios, uh the portfolio of all these actors, uh Pictures right. and portraits. So now, what was your plan to do with them? Were you planning to go to a magazine that shoots actors? Were you we trying to freelance? Were you we trying to get a book together? What was going through your mind that you have this work? People seem to like your work. So, what was your aim with that portfolio? What were you kind of work were you trying to get?
1: Well, the goal at that time. I mean, you have to remember that was sort of when magazines were really, really lucrative, amazing... You know, like, it, the magazine pre, pre-internet pre and pre, you know, any social media was a huge booming business. And there was, you know, we were all still shooting on film and, um, and, and the best photographers in the world were shooting for magazines. Rolling Stone, Vanity Fair, GQ, Esquire, Vogue, you know, Harper's Bazaar. Like, that's where you saw the greatest artists of in photography working, you know, from Richard Avedon to, uh, Annie, to, to Mario Testino, to, you know, Paolo Sorrenti, there was, there were photographers, Albert Watson, um, Mm -hmm. Bruce Weber, who, you know, they, they had these amazing lives shooting for magazines and then shooting advertising campaigns and stuff like that. And that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to, I wanted to make these features on, on people, and not so much fashion. I, I was never, I was never drawn towards fashion as much as I was, you know, a portrait that really um, characterized a, an individual in a way that made you understand their who they were. And, and I think that came from my love for editorial cartoons. And I mentioned earlier, I I was the editorial cartoonist at my college paper, and I had sort of a knack for coming up with a single frame idea that could that could convey a larger idea which is exactly what you have to do in an editorial cartoon you've got basically one frame to tell a story and uh, and i think that my gradual progression to my eventual style of photography came from that you know that sensibility of what can what larger story can i tell in a single image and uh, people like annie Leibowitz and Bruce Weber and, you know, and some of the more conceptual photographers, they were very good at doing that. You know, Annie Annie sort of paved the way for a lot of photographers with her seminal Rolling Stone portraits. You know, when you saw John Lennon on the floor with Yoko in this embrace, and y- there was so much information there for for someone who was wanting a career in photography. Like, you know, you look at John Lennon, you say, okay, she asked him to take his clothes off. She found a picture that showed their... Relationship that showed his humanity and his vulnerability, and you know, there's there's something about that that was really intriguing to me. So, my goal was to take these, this portfolio and go to New York and try to convince magazines to hire me. And there weren't staff photographers; there were photographers that that had contracts with certain magazines, but. Pretty much, photographers in that world are freelance, and and the idea was you go out and you make relationships with photo editors, and you try to talk them into giving you some work. And it was a pretty crowded field then. And I think I had, if I had understood how crowded it was and how many people wanted that work, I might have been a little bit more, uh, you know, discouraged about my chances. But I think I went into it with such naivety that that I would just get on a plane and come from LA, and I'd be the only person doing that. And and I think that really helped me because I wouldn't drop off my portfolio. You know, these, these magazine photo editors had drop-off days where they would get a stack of portfolios in the corner of their office and, you know, you'd drop them off on Monday and you'd pick them up on Thursday. And I would call and say, look, I'm only in town for a few days and I, I only have one copy of my portfolio, so I can't drop it off, but I I can show it to you in five minutes in person. And that turned out accidentally to be a really good way to make relationships, and that's sort of how I got my start, and eventually I think Entertainment Weekly gave me a job, and then Time Magazine gave me a job, and I kind of worked my way up the food chain until I was shooting for Vanity Fair and Esquire and Rolling Stone.
0: How does that work? Does that, like, does it, do they sit there, as you said, you know, you start with Entertainment Weekly, then Time, and you roll up, do they sit there, and then do these other magazines look at your work, and is it like anything, you start getting a buzz about your work, and they, they think, well, you know what? This guy's really good in Entertainment Weekly. Just think how good it'll be in Rolling Stone. I mean, is that the progression of how pretty much it works?
1: That's the idea. I, I mean, you know, the the money for editorial wasn't great. It was a lot better then. I think that it is now. I feel I feel bad for how hard it is now for magazines photographers. But but the idea was back then. You as a photographer, not only was your name printed right there at the front of the story, you know, photographs by Sam Jones. But you were pretty much left alone in the idea department. And and the photo editors back then, I think, gave a lot more leeway and expected a lot more of a photographer to come up with their own idea. And that's changed now. Now I think uh, there's, there's not as much creative freedom. But back then, you'd take a, a lesser paycheck to get a cover or a spread or something in a big magazine that had your name on it. And that was sort of like, you know, uh, the way that you marketed yourself. And and so for me, I think my first job ever for a magazine was uh, I had to take a picture of a parking space <laughs> for a little quarter-page picture in the back of Entertainment Weekly. And and it was a crap job, and I knew it was a crap job, But uh, but, you know, there was some feud going on between two celebrities and and this one parking space and uh and it became sort of a little uh, you know a a little story in the industry and and so entertainment weekly sent me out there and i shot about 10 rolls of film trying to make an artistic picture of a parking space (laughs) and i I sent it off and i think the editor took pity on me that i worked so hard on this and then they gave me a little quarter page picture of uh, i don't even remember who but uh, an actor and and then and then you know you prove yourself to be reliable and and my, my whole thing always was e- even if the even if the assignment was small, I was going to make the pictures really you know bigger than the assignment and I would, I would always try to give them something that that made them want to give the picture more space or something like that and and I worked really, really hard on doing multiple ideas and you know talking the the, the subject into trying more things than and they thought they were going to be asked and so eventually you know people started to take notice of the pictures and I would get I would get full pages and then that turned into features and then eventually a a cover and that's how it went
0: what was your first cover you got
1: you know I think it was the cast of the Drew Carey show for the cover of Entertainment Weekly if I recall correctly and I killed myself on that job I I uh, there were six people in the cast, and I remember I made a bicycle built for six. I found a friend who knew how to weld, and we bought six bicycles, and we made a bicycle built for six. And then I I did a, a picture. Do you remember uh, Highlights magazine? The, oh yeah. In could, the back, could, there'd be a What's wrong with this picture? Oh yeah, yeah. all the things that are wrong. Oh totally. I thought that'd be a great. Image And so I I created a a picnic scene with the cast of the Drew Carey show where they, uh, you know, you had to find all the things that were wrong with the picture. And and so I just played around with these big ideas and and I ended up getting a lot of pages in the magazine and and the cover and and, uh, that that sort of started me on my way.
0: Now, when did you start really getting your stride with celebrities because you, you shot so many i mean at what point of your career did that happen was that like a rolling stone cover that really started branching you or a vanity fair cover what brought you to that in your eyes that next level from going to even though entertainment weekly you know it's a magazine it, as you said it, it's not the big leagues it's not rolling stone but what was your transition right, to right. getting into those magazines what, i mean was there a certain event was it one cover then all of a sudden it just took off how did, how did this whole career where you shot so many people just started? Were they just people were really wanted to work with you?
1: Well, I remember uh, exactly the picture that, that got a lot of attention, that probably, probably really jump-started it. I, I was doing some work for Vanity Fair. They had a, a page called Vanities, and uh, it was a single-page uh, feature that was both a picture and a long caption that sort of introduced a new star, and I, I photographed Russell Crowe for that page. I photographed Amy Adams, uh, Vince Vaughn. I, I did a bunch of those where it was a single page thing. And then they called and they asked, uh, Vanity Fair asked me to do a feature of a page on Chris Rock. It was called the Spotlight. And a Spotlight was different than a Vanity's because it was a two page spread. And that was a big deal for me. And so I thought, OK, I'm going to come up with a really crazy idea and and you know, because I felt like okay, this is my shot. I'm getting, I'm getting a spotlight, and Annie Lee Woods does spotlights, and you know, uh, uh, Mario Testino does spotlights, and Bruce Weber does spotlight. Like, this is a big deal. So, um, I, I had this book called Hoaxes, Humbugs, and Spectacles, and it was photographs from the turn of the century up to about the '50s of uh, people who who created hoaxes and and you know, weird circus people and, you know, th- someone who created a, a fake fish that they talked the newspaper into believing that this, this prehistoric fish washed ashore. And I love this book because it sh- sort of showed the hustling, darker side of humanity. It was all pulled from, you know, newspapers from the turn of the century. And, and there was a picture of a fireman in there who could point his hose down at the ground and shoot himself up into the air. And I thought, God, that would be a great picture to recreate. That was always in the back of my mind. So when I got Chris Rock, I decided I wanted to recreate this picture. And um, and I put a budget together that was, I think it was $17,000 at the time, to do this picture. And the budget for a spotlight was $3,500. And so uh, I, a, I made a call to Chris's people, and I... I talk somehow talked him into it and i decided i was just going to pay the difference and go into my pocket and, and try to do this thing and, and we closed down a whole street up in uh, up in griffith park and uh got a fireman and a special effects crew and a and hooked into a hydrant and did the whole thing and hung chris rock from from wires and and recreated this picture and and i think that vanity fair when they got the pictures they were just kind of blown away that i'd gone to these lengths and the picture was on that level you know the level of annie putting you know uh, putting a making a building on fire and a helicopter flying through and tom cruise hanging from something you know it was it was on that level of a big cinematic portrait and uh and i think that picture sort of stepped me up a level to where people wanted to work with me for my ideas and my brain and and that i was going to get people to do things and that that was a big that was sort of a big one, and that, and from then on, I think that the work started flowing pretty good.
0: Now, now you've shot so many people, who surprised you that you went in thinking this could be a difficult shoot, and it turned out to be really easy. Was anyone like that? Like, because you always hear stuff like this person could be difficult. You hear, you know, this actor is difficult. Is there any? Is there any once, uh, that you went in and you thought this is going to be this might be a pain in my ass, but when you got in, you went, oh my god, this is like a vacation.
1: Well, I mean, I was always sort of uh I think one of the things that that helped is that i wasn't I wasn't really uh obsessed with celebrity culture, and I always kind of had the sense that these people are collaborating with me. you know, I didn't go in thinking I've got to get them to do something they don't want and and my whole thing was always killing with kindness, coming with five or six ideas, and if they hate the first three. Just get rid of them and throw them away. I mean, I, you know, even if I had a giraffe around the corner that they couldn't see, and I showed them a, a little sketch with them with the giraffe, and they said, "Ah, it's not me." I would never even reveal that there was a giraffe around the corner waiting. You know, like so. I, I always had a pretty good respect for people, and I think that helped me a lot. And and there were certain certainly people who were difficult, um, but for me, I think it was it was when I photographed really really big stars it I would I would worry since I was young and I looked young I would worry that I wouldn't have their confidence and that was probably sort of more my insecurity I i probably dealt with a lot of insecurity of, of not being good enough or and I think a lot of a lot of that insecurity drives me to this day of of prepping and working really hard uh, because I don't ever want to be in that position where someone says you know you don't belong you're not good enough and and so I think on those, on those days when I was photographing a really big star at the time that, you know, I, w- I would worry that this would be the time where they would pull me aside and say, look, let's get a real photographer, here. <laughs> let's g- get someone who knows what they're doing. And, Cause you know, photography is, it's, it's an imperfect science and you can sort of have the best intentions sketched out, and things don't go your way. The light doesn't go your way, or the or the relationship doesn't go your way, or or you, or you want to try something and it just doesn't work like you saw it in your mind. And and some of the best pictures come from accidents anyway. So there's there's a confidence factor that sometimes I had a hard time with. And I remember when I first got asked to photograph George Clooney. You know, I I felt like he was a very iconic guy at the time, and and I thought that. I really had to have myself together, and really had had to have it planned out. And and when I met him, I I was blown away at how, um, you know, immature—not immature, but how how uh, loose and playful and easygoing he was, and how he was more way more of an artist than he was, uh, you know, a, a leading man. And despite his you know his reputation of being a really good-looking guy and everything, he he was more of an independent artist in his head and and we did a shoot together that turned out to be probably my favorite magazine cover ever i photographed him for the cover of esquire magazine and i, I photographed him walking through a sea of men and in, in hats and suits and he was kind of coming the other way and and then the art director of the magazine came up with a brilliant headline which was a man among men and and it was just one of those things where an idea translated so well to the person we were photographing and the image of him and the and and he and i i sort of developed a collaboration there that's gone on to this day where i've probably photographed him 75 times wow. and uh you know and I, and I i just remember being so nervous going into that shoot and and being blown away by how how much of a collaborator and an experimenter he was and he was up for anything and and it, it maybe as, as nervous as i was in terms of you know it's not easy to be photographed, and I think it's not super comfortable for any of us. And in fact, it wasn't until I started directing uh, and making films that I was on the other side of it and was being interviewed and photographed. and And it was such a huge education to find out what it felt like to to be photographed and and to be you know to have some, things asked of you and to have uh, to see someone else's process and and you, and you realize how hard that is. Um, especially to someone who's an actor and who's used to being captured in a moving picture way, which is completely different, and, and how nerve wracking it can be to try to be Tom Cruise or be George Clooney or be Meryl Streep in a still image, you know, because it's not it's not your forte. And a lot of people, I don't think, realize that they think that photography and film are hand in hand, but they're actually two very different experiences.
0: Now, you, you just so uh... that was
1: that was a big thing.
0: You okay, know, you just said when you uh, when you were getting interviewed for the directing and stuff like that, I know you have directed videos and documentaries. How did you transition into that? Was that just a something that you were doing photography and you said, I want to do this? Or did you, you know, photograph someone and they said you should direct this video? How did you make that jump? Because as you said, it is a lot different. I mean, a photographer, you know, you're taking the, the pictures. But it seems like back to your days when you did editorials, you always wanted to tell a story with – you know, one frame for those cartoons, a video basically is a story. How did you get into directing videos and documentaries?
1: Well, even before I thought of becoming a photographer and I was young, uh, the idea of of cinematography was very exciting to me. And uh, maybe this was a confidence thing or or the way I grew up and and didn't have it exposed to me, but I always thought like I, I didn't, there was no way I could become a, a director of photography or a cinematographer or a director because it just seemed so out of reach. You know, I'd, you'd go to film school and you would have to have great grades and, and you'd have to know people in the business. And it, it just didn't seem, I guess I didn't think big enough as a kid. But, um, but I think all of my photographs for years were trying to be films or trying to be a bigger story. And and the single frame was sort of like the uh, the result of of a bigger idea. So uh, it started with commercials. I I was photographing a campaign for a, a bank, and the art director liked my photography and and said, "Have you ever directed commercials?" And I said, "No, but I I could," <laughs> and and I sort of you know I, I sort of probably. Led him to believe that I knew a lot more about it than I did, and uh, and so they they let me bid on a commercial which I didn't even understand, and I had to call my cousin who was a sound man on commercials, and I said, "How do I do this?" And he said, "Well, you gotta you gotta get a production company, and you gotta put a pitch together, and you have to, you know, this whole process." And so um, he gave me one name and number of a guy he knew this guy peter abraham who ran a company called fusion films and i called and i said i'm being asked to bid on a commercial can you help me and you know on his end it's not very often that a director comes to a production company with a job in hand usually directors are trying to get hired by production companies so that the production can get them a job so uh, you know this guy was like yes great come on in we'll take care of everything and we put a bed together and we put storyboards together and and it turns out i was really good at storyboards because i was a cartoonist and and i was pretty good at at just sort of naturally knowing what i wanted to do with the camera and and i think that comes from skateboarding and, and making skate videos and um and you know being in bands and filming filming our own videos for bands you know all that kind of little stuff um and I did this commercial, and, and it was a children's hospital commercial that was completely, you know, esoteric and uh, lyrical and not really narrative at all. Um, but after I finished that commercial, this guy, Peter, said, why don't you be a director at our company? And we'll try to get you work. And I thought, great, I'll just be a director from now on, and that'll be easy. <laughs> and then, And then, you know, I realized that Without a reel and without any experience, without any connections in that world, there was no work coming. And and when I was put up for you know any any jobs that came through, I was the guy with no experience, so I was getting no work at all. So I came to Peter and I said, "Look, I want to I want to make a documentary uh, about this band Wilco because I think they're great and I I love music documentaries. And do you want to help me?" And he said, "Well, I won't help you financially, but I'll give you the resources of the company if you." want me to help us, you know, uh, want me to help you find local crew in Chicago and all that stuff. So I called, um, I I reached out to the record company and eventually found the manager and and wrote a letter to the band and they agreed to meet with me. And and then eventually Jeff Tweedy agreed to let me make a documentary about his band. And and, uh, so I sort of took a giant chance on myself and put a whole bunch of money into this film. And, and eventually, I, I should say, eventually, near the end of the process, Peter also came on board financially, and we found another financier and stuff. But I, I ended up making this film that, that really was my film school in a lot of ways, and and uh, not dissimilar to the time when I went and pulled these actors aside on film sets and made a portfolio. I, I, I sort of just taught myself documentary filmmaking, and that sort of accidentally became the way that I got hired as a director.
0: And so you got that. Now, when did you start branching out and directing videos?
1: So after I did the, the documentary, um, I think we cut a few videos from the footage for, for the band to help, to help Will go out. So I had a you know, and, and because that documentary sort of became among, among music people it uh, became pretty, pretty well known, and uh, I was lucky enough that Cameron Crowe uh, wrote a, wrote an article for Rolling Stone about uh, the best rock documentaries of all time, and, and put mine in there, and and uh, so so I had a reputation from that film, and and so I got a lot of music video offers, and uh, and most of them, you know, most of them, music videos are tough because there's not a lot of money, and and the the bands often have their own ideas or, or you know, and, and again, with me, I the idea is the king. So if I didn't like the band or if I didn't connect with the music or, if you know, if there were, to me, restrictions on the creativity, there didn't seem to be a reason to make videos uh, unless you could make something completely, you know, original that was your own idea. And so I, I, I made some videos, but I always try to be pretty selective about it.
0: Now, was it helpful that you had taken the photographers of the stars when people were looking at you for the video? Between that and the Wilco documentary, was it? Was it? So, you be starting to become a hot commodity?
1: Well, it's a funny thing because you know my whole life, and it's taken me a lot a long time to realize this, but I pretty much follow my interests without regard to how that sets me up as a brand or sets me up as it to be defined as an artist, and so I, uh, you know, I. At the time where I'm taking all these pictures of actors, I probably could have done a better job positioning myself as a director of, you know, famous people in commercials or something like that. But my interest in music is huge and I've played music all my life and and when when that documentary came out, I think it confused a lot of people and in the in the photography world I stopped getting as much work because I think people had assumed that just stopped taking pictures and then in the commercial world I started getting documentary based projects where people wanted me to make a commercial that had more of a doc feel and those people didn't know me as a photographer that photographed famous people so I wouldn't get any work on the directing side for that so I, you know if if I had been a more savvy marketer and brand person I would have you know I probably would have had a different career but the truth is, I always just sort of follow my interest project to project, and and so I'm, I think in the in this world, in this creative world of clients and things like that, you know, which I went through for a long time, uh, they want a well defined package, and I never really fit that, so I sort of had to start over every time I did something new, and the documentaries turned into documentary type commercials, and I and you know it, it was. It was sort of a long road to to define myself as an artist in terms of how I would be, you know, how I would be sought after. I think I think uh, it, it frustrated agents in in the photography world and in the directing world throughout it because because I would just sort of you know let the idea be king rather than my brand or my or my style. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. Now, how did it come that you got to shoot? uh Obama how did that come about and what is it like when you're shooting a president is there like major security I mean what is that like I mean it's the president you know we don't think I like guess the you know and he is a very popular president well, well he's not my president anymore but how did that come about and what was that like and what do you I mean as a photographer I know you want to set the mood but it's the president I mean how do you <laughs> what was that like? well funny enough,
1: I, I photographed eight presidents. Oh, wow. Which is, I think, has to be some sort of a record. And to be fair, I photographed four of them at the, at the, uh, the, maybe it was the Reagan Library and four presidents were there, or it was the Nixon Library maybe. But um, because I was a photojournalist that transitioned into magazine work, um, I ended up photographing a lot of presidents. And, uh, and, and, it was it was it's such an odd little side note to my career that that I've been in these rooms with these people and and uh the Obama thing was was really funny because Rolling Stone sent me out um with him for like a week and uh and i sort of went back to my photojournalism days and just hung around him with a camera for a while knowing that at some point they were going to give me my little time to do the cover of Rolling Stone with him and uh and so I was on the road for like five days before they said, "Okay, at you know at noon you're going to get twenty minutes with him," and and uh, and he's he was such a, I mean such a normal great guy, you know, typical politician in that he remembers everybody's name and little details about you and everything, but but there was something going on i forget what it was but some crisis going on when when i finally had him for the cover session and so he was he was literally sort of giving me the the fake smile and then turning away and and having conversations you know while standing there in front of the camera and and i was getting nothing and so i finally just I, i i knew i had just a few minutes and so i told him a really dirty joke and and he he laughed and repeated the joke to his uh chief staff and and uh i got this moment with him and 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 i you know and it's sort of a lesson that no matter if it's the president or whoever it is you got to find some way to connect with somebody so there's an exchange back and forth and 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 someone's all there because the, the thing that i've tried to avoid my entire photography career is is the feeling that somebody's posing or they're trying to they're they're trying to through the through the use of a camera or a lens or a pose uh, to communicate something that, that isn't human. Or, you know, I've always tried to avoid that. So my if you could say I have any style that's to humanize all these famous people, and I think it's because I don't see them as on pedestals. I really always just sort of see them as as human beings. And I, really, honestly, with the president, it was no, there was no difference to me. It was just another person that I had to find a way in to to getting some, a real moment out of them and, and then document that moment. And, and So, yeah.
0: So now, how did your the TV show come about? And what was it like for you to sit there being behind the camera, directing, all of a sudden being in front and starting a conversation? And how did you decide to do it in black and white?
1: Okay, so Off Camera came about in 2013. Uh, at the end of 2013 and it started you know i've done a lot of documentary stuff and and in a documentary a lot of times what you do is you sit down by the camera and you have conversations with people and and in my photography work i i'm a very conversational photographer i'd rather i'd rather not say move your arm here and tilt your chin this way i'd rather i'd rather sort of get them telling me a story and you know, have a conversation and then and and photograph them while we're doing that. So, I've had a lot of experience sitting and, and talking, and it comes pretty naturally to me to ask questions about, you know, their life and their career, and 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 you know, to be curious in a way that that pulls the story out of somebody. And I'm also a big fan of radio, and always have been my whole life. And uh, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine, and he asked if I listened to podcasts. And I said, yes, I, I do. I listen to Fresh Air, and I listen to This American Life. And at, at the time, you know, there wasn't quite this explosion. Um, and, and he said, you know, you should do a podcast. You'd be, you'd be good at that. That'd be interesting. And, and I started thinking about it, and I said, well, if I was going to do a podcast, I'd probably film it, because why not? And if, if, I'm, if they're already there and I'm filming them, it would be great to take a picture of them while I'm doing it. And then I thought about it, and I thought, God, there's never been a, there's never been a, a conversation that is spread out as a medium, as a television show, a podcast, and a magazine. And I thought, okay, maybe we could do that. Maybe that would be a different, different kind of project that would sort of pull all my interests in together, and even my habits, because, you know, my wife and I we go to bed at different times or she'll fall asleep before me and i learned a long time ago that i love to you know i all my whole life i've read at night before i go to bed and, and the light bothered my wife and once the ipad came along i realized i could i could turn the light really low and i'd read at night and and i thought god it'd be great to it'd be great to be able to absorb this these conversations you know sometimes you want to read them sometimes you want to watch them and sometimes you're driving in your car maybe you want to listen to them so that was sort of the experiment and and maybe I could have a conversation that was not really a an interview, but more of a conversation about the process and the craft and the the idea that these not looking at these people as celebrities, but looking at them as craftspeople and as humans who had to like me figure out what it is they're good at and what it is that, that drives them and interests them, you know, and and so that was sort of the setup for off camera and and I think that the the goal was to have real conversations about about curiosity and craft and and how people you know developed enough confidence to to do the thing that makes them great. And so I started out with a test show. Uh, I have a friend who's a who's a uh, studio musician whose whole life he's played with. Uh, countless people from John Lennon to uh, Harry Nilsson to Jackson Brown, Lucinda Williams, uh, and, and he's, uh, he's the son of the, uh, Jill Ireland and David McCallum and the stepson of Charles Bronson, and he's had the most fascinating life, and he's a fascinating guitar player, and, and I thought, well, this is great because we're good friends, and I could sit down and I could do a test show, and I know his story is interesting so we did it and it turned out to be really interesting and the reason we did it in black and white was because um i i just had the idea that um you know when you think about a photographic portrait like richard Avedon is one of my favorite portrait photographers and it's the reason his portraits is so powerful is that he finds he finds a way to get completely inside the mind and the soul of somebody without any other elements in the photograph and they're you know, most of his work is black and white. and It's on a white background. And I thought that might be a fascinating way to have a conversation. And a few years earlier, I had done a Tom Petty documentary and I had done black and white uh, interviews for the documentary on a white background. And I was struck in the editing of those, how much more of the story came through because there was no other information on the screen. And you could really, you could really like get inside their expressions and inside their thought process. So And it was also very practical to, to do it on black and white and keep it really, really simple. And, and that was sort of the, that was sort of the plan. And, uh, we filmed the test show and it, and it worked really well and we built this website that you could either do the podcast or the magazine or watch the TV show. And I just sort of did them randomly for seven or eight episodes and, and then someone at DirecTV stumbled across it online and asked us to come in and have a a meeting. And they they wanted to put our show, uh on their network, so that's sort of that's sort of the progression of it.
0: Now, how many episodes do you do a season?
1: Well, it, it sort of changes every season, but it, it keeps going up. We just filmed our ninety first episode, and this year we'll do forty five, and which is great because um, I, I feel like you know it, it's the more the more it's done. The, the more it, it feels more like a conversation rather than these blocks of seasons. And, and it forces me out of my comfort zone a little bit because doing so many, you know, it, it, I can't be as precious about the curating of the show. And uh, and so we're doing a lot now. We're, we're basically putting one on a week all year with two, three-week breaks.
0: All right, cool. Well, that's, that's awesome. So, uh, so what else is going on? We have a few minutes left. Uh, anything big coming up for you?
1: Well, the uh, I just uh, I don't know if I can talk about it yet, but uh, there's some film projects in the works for me, and um, you know, I, I, during this during the process of off camera, I've also gone off and done things like I directed an episode of Roadies last year for Cameron Crowe, and um, I made a base, but it's documentary a couple of years ago, and and I love I love where I am right now with with this ability to have these conversations with people uh About the creative process, and I, 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 so selfishly get to learn so much about, you know, about how different people approach their careers. And like from Martin Plasse and his philosophy on on how to be his own studio, you know, to someone like Greta Gerwig and how she writes films, and and so right now I'm really excited about about the fact that I get to have one foot in these conversations with my all-time cinematic heroes and and creative gurus and then i get to go work on my own projects
0: well that's so, awesome
1: hoping there's more documentaries in the future and and more creative projects from me
0: cool well, I, I want to thank you for coming on I'm glad we got to do this uh we we had some hurdles some obstacles but we got it done um now your website is samjonespictures.com
1: yeah although i would encourage people to go to offcamera.com because okay. that that site has so much about the show and so many photographs and everything that um yeah, check
0: them both out. Check out offcamera.com and
1: samjonespictures.com. And your Twitter is? Sam Jones. Okay.
0: People, so check him out. Seriously, check out the show. It, it's good. He's a great interviewer, and it's, it's got a good feel. I, I was sitting on the couch, and I was like, captivated. So people, check him out. Follow him on Twitter. Follow me on Twitter, at cooper Talk. That's at CooperTalk. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. There's, I think, 585 episodes up there. You can email me, cooper, at coopertalk.net. Also, if you want to start a podcast or if you have a podcast and want to learn about booking better guests or learning a better interview process, hit me up there. I will do private tutoring. It's something I'm starting for the new year. something different. I want to get back to the community. Also, my other website, StopTheSalt.com, you remember when I went through that health problem? Well, I got out of the hospital with a heart condition, and what did I do? I wrote a cookbook. It's 120 low-sodium recipes for one, even though I make them for two with me and Joanne. There's no pictures. That will get Sam mad because he's a, he's a photographer. But there's no pictures because a lot of times you guys you get you get intimidated by seeing pictures of food and the ingredients are easy. You can get it at Amazon.com or BarnesandNoble.com. But if you go to StopTheSalt.com, one I will sign it for you if you want. Two, I'll make more money, and isn't that it's about me making money? So anyway, please go check out Sam. Look up, find his work. Look at his photography. Look at it, it, it's great. Go see off camera. Uh, Go follow him on Twitter. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I will talk to you next week.